This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome to the fifth and final episode of Rewind's trip back 35 years to the birth of Born Sandy devotional, the Triffitt's much-loved second album. If you've been with us from the start, thanks heaps for taking the ride. If you haven't, we highly recommend going back and starting from the beginning rather than jumping in here. Okay, so we rejoin the fray with Born Sandy Devotional now finished and in the can. We've followed the Triffords from Perth to Sydney and Melbourne and then over to mid-80s London where they lived in squalor trying to land a major label deal. They won over the press, they won over plenty of fans, but for many reasons, some of which we have touched on already, that major label deal just hadn't been forthcoming, at this stage anyway. They paid for the album themselves, with money they'd scraped together from tours and bits of publishing money and so forth, and made the record themselves with the help of up-and-coming producer Gil Norton and some empathetic friends. The results were objectively a triumph, a huge progression in ambition, delivery and scope. Frontman Dave McCombs said of Born Sandy Devotional in one of his letters back to the album's muse Margaret, I can't pretend otherwise. The songs on the new album are as honest as I can get while still retaining a narrative or cinematic feel. Pedal steel player Graham Lee remembers being immensely proud of what they'd done but still slightly nonplussed that no label had backed their quest. Yeah, I can remember writing to writing a letter to my to my folks and saying, Oh, we've we've recorded this record and it's really great and we're gonna shop it around to the to the major labels. We're trying to get a major label deal and we think it, we think this will work. <laughs> it didn't. Hmm. Um no, we really yes we and Sally will will um, I'm sure agree here. Yeah, we thought we had something that um, was so much better than than the records that we were hearing. Um, now we were very very happy with what we'd done and and very surprised when when nobody wanted to put it out. And I guess there's there, there are probably lots of reasons for that. I think the main one being that major labels want to have their claws into it from the start, and particularly back then, major labels wanted to have their claws into into a record from the very beginning, and they probably looked at it as I don't know, um, just well, it didn't didn't fit their their bill because. They didn't pay for it. Um, we didn't owe them anything. <laughs> and if we didn't owe them anything, how could they owe us anything? <laughs> mm. Something like that. Obviously, the album was still coming out. It just wasn't going to be on a major. Back home, the Triffords were still with Hot. But in 1986, Hot lost their distribution deal and were forced to merge with Mushroom's alternative tentacle White to form new imprint, White Hot meaning that the Triffids were now back on Mushroom. 
who dumped them back in early 83 after the bad timing and other stories EP, a slight that Dave had not taken lightly. Some of the cryptic comments in subsequent liner notes on Triffitt's releases were taken to be veiled digs at their old home, such as on Treeless Plane, the debut album, where the brief credits conclude with No thanks to you know very well who you are. But past grudges aside, that turn of events worked out pretty well for the Triffids. White Hot gave them an advance upon the release of Born Sandy that Hot wouldn't have been in a financial position to afford, plus now embraced in the Mushroom family, they could avail themselves of that company's market presence and reach. For instance, I'm pretty sure it was through that connection that they got to open for Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at Sydney Entertainment Centre in February 86, no doubt a huge deal for the Dylan-loving Dave, meaning they are in good hands for the Australian release that following March. As manager Sally Collins is about to explain, Born Sandy Devotional still had UK and European releases through the hot distro deal with Rough Trade, although it wouldn't come out over there for a few more months. But now, having the copies of Born Sandy Devotional, she was free to start looking for a major label home for the next Trifford Studio album. Here's Sally recounting actually hearing Born Sandy Devotional. Well, I think I probably cried. <laughs> the, uh, I don't remember the exact moment, but I, you know, I do remember. I was just so proud of them, you know, just because, you know, despite not having that deal, despite the fact that you know Alzi was having to sit in a rooftop in the, the building next door, and and, and despite that we were living, you know, hand to mouth, and and you know, the, despite all these things, they got together and they made this something that was just truly beautiful. It's just, just a story, you know, from from go to woe. And I was so excited when I got my first, you know, cassettes that I could use of the finished thing to start going back to record companies. And by that stage, uh, we hadn't formally ditched Martin at that stage, but he had gone back to Australia. So I was in the position of being able to go to the companies and visit companies on my own and say, look, you know, I just, I'm just here for the Triffids. You know, I don't, I'm not here representing anybody else. And here's, this is what they've done. And this is what, you know, we wanted to do, but this is what they've done now. And so we, the offers started coming. So Virgin was first to offer and then, um, uh, BMG were a little bit interested. Uh, some um, I got to see Muff Winwood, who was at CBS, and he just thought it was so fantastic. He said, "But it's not for us. We'll, you know, we just would." The really great thing about for me um, in the UK, working in the UK, and, and it is was for the band too, is that in Australia we were small, you know, small fish in a small pond. In the UK, nobody gave a shit about, you know, Australia or the fact, you know, they took you on your merits. So if you if if your product was good and if you did what you said you would do, doors would open to you. So doors were opening to me and I and people were um you know, they were very keen to talk about the, the band at that stage. Of course, most of them 
wanted David. You know, they, they, the offers were, you know, and I wasn't interested in that. But by the the stage that Born Sandy was there and out and and um, I had seen Chris Blackwell interviewed on the Tube. Um, do you know that TV show that was famous TV? Yeah, yeah. And I just was so inspired by Ireland, you know, and this guy's vision of a record company that becomes a home for life, where artists are nurtured. You don't need a million artists. You only have, you know. 20 artists or something on your roster and you look after them and you become part of their lives. And I was so inspired by that. I was thinking, you know, that's who I want. That's where the Triffids should be. They should be with Ireland. And um, the, uh, you know, Virgin was signing lots of, lots of acts and lots of Australian acts. Um, and they would give you like, two chances and then they drop you. You know, if they didn't get the results into two records, you're, you're gone. And, um, you know, I didn't want that for the Triffids, you know, because, you know, they weren't necessarily a singles band. And um, so I, uh, even though there were these other offers that were sort of milling around, I just started to go hard for Ireland and, um, yeah, and and very fortunately, um, uh, there was um, there was a changeover happening there in the UK, and we um, we our timing was good. Yeah, because there was a changeover in management in A and R because they'd been representing Ireland had stiff as well, stiff records there. So um, and. The guys at Stiff were so nice, but they knew and I knew that the Triffids wasn't a Stiff band. You know, if, if we were going to be, we would be an island. Anyway, there was this changing of the guard and, um, yeah, we got the deal for manager. Was it was it close at some point for Born Sandy to actually come out on Ireland? Was that even a possibility, or was it too late because it had come out in Australia and everything? Or? It was too late because it, um, you know, we needed them. We needed the money and we needed it out. So we it came out on um, white in Australia, white hot. It came out um, on MNW first uh, for Scandinavia, which is a Swedish company. They did a great job with it, great, great job. And, um, uh, and it came out on a label called Megadisc for Holland, Belgium, um, and, and in the other territories, um, Rough Trade Distribution put it, got it out there. So it did really well you know it was and and particularly then in this in the scandinavian countries and in belgium and holland because we had that extra really personal attention and um yeah we just had great experiences in those air territories as after that yeah the album had been ready for release in the back end of 85 but not wanting to get caught up in the christmas rush where new titles can get easily lost Born Sandy Devotional came out in Australia on March 24, 1986. The album on top of the charts that day was Dire Straits' Brother in Arms, 
Slap bang in the middle of a non-consecutive 34-week stint at top of the charts. A whole lot of money for nothing. Dire Straits had knocked off Jimmy Barnes for the working class man a couple of months earlier and would eventually be dethroned by Sting's The Dream of the Blue Turtles. Over on the singles chart, Billy Ocean is in the middle of a six-week stretch with When the Going Gets Tough, the Tough Get Going, which had knocked off Diane Warwick's That's What Friends Are For and would soon make way for Diana Ross with Chain Reaction, which would itself be overtaken by Cliff Richards and the Young Ones with Living Doll, which I used to think was wonderful. Bob Hawke is PM, and around this time, Lindy Chamberlain is finally released from prison when they find Azaria's clothes outside of Dingo's lair. The Russell Street bombing happens in Melbourne. Treasurer Paul Keating makes his famous Banana Republic jibe. It was a strange old time. It was a strange old decade. But this was the world into which Born Sandy devotional arrived. It came out to positive reviews, Aussie critics usually seeming to get the Triffids. Ram magazine lumped it alongside Heyday by The Church and Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express by The Go-Betweens, gushing, only three months in and three of our better bands have released their best records yet. All these records show the respective bands possessed of a previously undisplayed mastery of the studio, a willingness to rope in extra strings, horns and keyboard players as required to give the songs the full realisation they deserve. But the Triffids remained at the time something of an underground proposition and Born Sandy Devotional would peak at number 37 on the Australian album chart. Trifford member Rob McComb also recalls being frustrated that Born Sandy didn't end up with major label backing, but also posits that perhaps if they had signed a deal, maybe Born Sandy wouldn't have ended up so special. There was frustration with just about all our records, though, in you know, that they didn't get a lot of promotion or that... Um, you know, things like the Bad Timing EP that came out in white. We were travelling around sort of supposedly promoting that, but it wasn't even out yet. Um, we didn't have a lot of uh, uh, good timing or, or good management in, in the industry as such. But I don't know whether it was... Um, I don't know whether frustration is the right word, but it was more uh, just the difficulties of the business, you know, as... Still, you know, we there are some some moments that I look back on that, that might have made things differently. Um, in nineteen eighty four, when we were first in the UK, we got well, not not a not a confirmed offer, but Simon Potts, who was running Electra Records at the time, the Electra label in the UK, he came over to our flat and essentially offered us a deal. Said, "I'll, I'll sign you up." Now, this was Electra, a label the doors are on and, and you know, it's like a, and television. Simon Pops, who was running Electra, he came over and, and basically made us an offer, but we we didn't go with him because I think Dave thought he was too sort of industry-like and too sort of, it seemed sleazy or something, too good to be true, that kind of thing. But he went on and then signed Simply Red. And so through 1985, all we hear is Simply Red booming through all the speakers around the world. And uh, so that might have changed things, but so, and you might look back and say that was frustrating that we didn't get with a major. Maybe we wouldn't have made the record we did if we'd had Simon Potts looking over our shoulder trying to make a, you know, Simply Red record or, you know, or, or that kind of thing. Um, so 
Yeah, I think at the time we probably had a lot of, you know, what is, oh, we, you know, we don't get any breaks and, you know, we had to do it all ourselves, and which we did. It was really, you know, you don't want to romanticise it too much. It was a lot of, a lot of hard, hard yards, a lot of travelling and times and not much money and even hungry and that. But, yeah, it's just what, and what it produced was... Uh, you know, born Sandy out of out of those hard conditions, you'd say. A lot of people say, oh, you know, that is, it's when bands get signed up and they get money, they get spoilt and they, they lose. You know, you've got to be poor to be a great artist is the, is the, the reasoning, um, which I don't believe at all, especially if you're a great artist, you've got money, you can make even greater art. <laughs> I think a lot of poor artists get money and make and produce crap and it's only then that you, you realise that. Um, so we were we were probably frustrated at the time, uh, but look, looking back on it, I don't see it as a problem. There, you know, that, that's the way it was, and I don't re- sort of regret anything about uh, you know, the way things had turned out. The Triffids did an extensive Australian tour in March to coincide with the release. Then half a dozen Perth shows over April May, half farewells, half fundraisers. Then it was back over to the UK. Born Sandy Devotional came out in the UK on 16 June 1986 and over there the reviews were even more over the top. Sounds formed that all the other rock is howling around, picking the sand out of its eyes and the Triffids, on this hurricane form, make it look like a swarm of legless lizards. They've evidently taken their time but unleashed their true masterpiece when their nearest rivals clog their own arteries with pomp and frigid pretentiousness. NME hailed it as a masterpiece from a group who balanced melody, literacy, statement, illusion, force and resonance in a rock of multi-levelled sophistication yet unity of purpose. They see it as a country record about a country that might as well be the moon, a country where survival is no problem but finding a sense of place and purpose is. It's a country record born of the Triffids' native Western Australia, meaningless badlands where there's too few people, too much space and too much time. Melody Maker were even more effusive, questioning why an album finished nearly a year ago has been bouncing around between dithering record companies ever since. God knows why, because it's a classic. Ten songs of life and love in a hostile subtropical landscape. Dave McComb has real writer's insight. He's an old-fashioned songwriter who knows enough to leave space for you to map your own way through his imagery. These are good reviews, and there's plenty more. For the next couple of months, the Triffids play gigs around England and then some more headlining shows and festivals in mainland Europe and Scandinavia. Born Sandy Devotional goes to number 27 in the UK and number 18 in Sweden. For the Triffids, as Graham explains... Being critically acclaimed, but not breaking through commercially, was something they pretty soon grew accustomed to. Look, I, I think we were kind of resigned to, we just did what we did, and if it worked, it worked, and if it didn't, it didn't. Um, and yeah, I would have, I had hoped that, and I'm sure we all had hoped that it would, it would sell heaps, um, and. 
you know, bring us the, the breakthrough that, that would have uh, made our lives a little bit more comfortable, but um, <clears throat> didn't happen. And I don't know, I don't know what the reason for that might be. I mean, we did enough, we certainly did enough touring, um, but I guess at the time it was a very much a radio play um, situation where you really needed to be on the radio, have a single on the radio to, to have a hit record. And we never had a hit single um, ever. <laughs> but I mean, in fairness, to mid eighties, like you weren't really playing what was well. That's true. <laughs> yes, I guess we did make things a little bit difficult for ourselves by by making that decision to not sound like anything else. Mm. So that can work for you, or it can work against you. Um, it works for you in the long run mm. because if we had made a record that um, that you know paid some attention to what was going on around it um it would sound like a it wouldn't sound like sound timeless the way it does and it really is a timeless record the drum machine on wide open road briefly places it in the 80s as do perhaps dave's booming vocals but it's more about this song's ability to resonate through the ages adam peters the UK musician who played on Born Sandy and became Dave's close friend, believes that the record captured the chemistry of a moment in time. I think it doesn't date because it's just songs with really good playing on them, really good and really arrangements that were being done and recorded as these arrangements were not like, let's write out all the fucking keyboard parts and then play them. They were like, let's do this. And then so Graham would then be like, fuck, I'm going to do that on my pedal steel. And, you know, everyone started speaking through their, through their instruments. Um, so th- that's why I think it's timeless because the energy that went down onto the tape was a really, really unfiltered energy. It was, there was no one there going, oh, you've got to make this a single and make, put the chorus here and do this and do that. And what happened later to them, you know, was, you know, was, was not good. You know, the people coming in and say, oh, you've got to get rid of this one and this one, and you've got to have this and that and do this and do that. And it's like, fucking hell, man, you know, it's like then, then, then later making a record became like, you know, making, you know, it just became a headache. But this was just, so that's like, to me, I, I listened to that album and it's like a diary of how we felt uh, as people at that time. It's really, and that's what it is. So that's always going to be there forever until, you know, there's no more. CDs or records or internet, <laughs> you know, it, it's all there. It's there. And, the, and great, great recordings are like that. I listen, you know, that's why the Velvet Underground recordings are so great. And that's what, you know, th- that year we had, um, with the Bunnymen, you know, we'd made Ocean Rain and 
that was an amazing recording. You know, Killing Moon was really special. And all the big, you know, Nocturnal Me and Ocean Rain, you know, the dynamic of that performance is brilliant. And just because it's bands, it, it's, it's, a, it's a similar dynamic to, you know, like it might be a Frank Sinatra arrangement from the 50th song from, from the 50s. It might be Leonard Bernstein conducting Brahms from 1962. I mean, these are just a bunch of people in a room playing stuff with conviction and honesty and experimentation. And what you're hearing is the experiments working in real time. <laughs> so I think that's that's probably it. And they're amazing songs, you know. And they they're also amazing because they have they had something different. They had something very um, universal because the songs are about losing love and you know. But they also have this. Um, What do they have? They have this, they, they have a very Australian thing to them that's just naturally in them because of who Dave was and, you know, the way he was writing. It's like, um, to me, a song like Chicken Killer is kind of, it, it's not dissimilar to what Arnold Lane is by Sid's Pink Floyd, him singing about what clothes on the washing line, you know, in the back garden. It's like Chicken Killers, as, as Australian as that is English. You know, it's, it's just, it couldn't, I could not have written a lyric like that. O only Dave could have written that. Born Sandy engineer and longtime Triffords cohort, Nick Mainsbridge, Reckons he knew he was working on something pretty special at the time, though he never contemplated that he'd be talking about it still decades later. Sometimes you think this is great work. It happens frequently. Uh, but with music, there are so many processes after that that you really don't know if anyone's going to hear it. But you have to be content with knowing that what you're doing is, is good. Uh, Born Sandy, yeah, I thought it was a great record all the way through, but, um, you know, nobody thought that so many people would know about it. Why do you think that album still stands out? Well, again, you know, look, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I think at least half of the album, Gil actually didn't like that much to be honest. I don't know if you should put that in. But I remember, you know, the songs uh, featuring Jill or the sort of more gentle aspect was of little interest to him. So what we had was um, a guy who knew how to make the higher temperature stuff sound really good. And then the fallback was... Dave, who knew how to make the gentle stuff sound good. So what you have is this huge dynamic range and um, the album itself stands up because it, it, uh, 
it it makes its own weather like it's um yeah, exactly you have to listen to the whole record and then you get the dynamic range the amazing ideas the wonderful instrumentation and it, it goes from tiny to enormous way back in 1982 prior to born sandy dave mccomb told cultural theorist and essayist niall lucy we've done our hell's best not to be modern modern is always out of date his brother rob agrees that the triffids were always usually purposefully out of step with prevailing trends we were saying sort of like an anti-fashion kind of sentiment in the band that we last thing we wanted to do was to try and you know follow some trend whether it's you know um, fashion what you're wearing on stage or the type of song you're playing or the instrumentation or um and i guess that that's true of a lot of post-punk acts you know that such a variety of styles come out of the post-punk era um that yeah it gave a dave and alzi and phil when they started the band now fiercely sort of uh uh, independent in, in their attitudes to music. So, and could see the, the uh, if you like, the banality of, of, of punks trying to dress up with safety pins and, and things like, and, you know, studs through their noses. It, it, this is in 1977. Um, so that, that sort of conventional fashion of music didn't really hold a lot of appeal. So when when you're naturally independent thinking, um, yeah, you you tend to go for a, a an ant, not so much an anti-fashion, but develop your own style. And uh, and so yeah, uh, the worst thing you can do is to try and be fashionable. I think. Um, well, I think that's how Dave felt, and and so, yeah, as a band, it, it shows in in the. Uh, I mean, the violin wasn't a particularly fashionable. I guess you had Dexy's Midnight Runners back there, or pedal steel in particular. To use it the way we're doing, that wasn't and country music wasn't very fashionable. All those sort of influences, yeah, certainly not. Being trendy was not part of the uh, the deal. It was always, uh, you know, to be to be creative and uh, and be ourselves, or, or to, to 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 use good influences. You know, to, to use you know use good stuff, not not the uh, yeah. So um, the influences are there, um, and and quite quite clearly on on the sleeves. <laughs> Uh, but but they're not necessarily fashionable. Did Born Sandy feel special to you guys at the time? Did it feel like you'd made an amazing piece of art? Uh, look, I felt that way, you know, before I joined the band. I thought everything they did was amazing. Oh, sure, there are weaker songs than others. And, you know, doing, uh, doing all our records, you know, I always felt that we did pretty good effort. Born Sandy... I knew it was good, uh, but at the time I just saw it as an, you know, next Triffid record. Um, I guess I, you know, 
probably thought it was great, but I, you know, I was a very, um, you know, complimentary to all of Dave's efforts before that. So, and and that's the other thing with with this, especially popular music. You don't really know if it's going to be that popular, or if people are going to like it just because it's where you're going, the direction you're going. Um, so. Yeah, I can't say that I I knew it was any greater than any other record. And and I'm, for me that I, I I'm sort of personally involved. So in some say in some ways it, it's not any greater, uh, particularly than in something like Field of Glass. You know, it's, uh, you know that that's again going in, in this sort of more aggressive kind of direction of a song. Um, uh, and same with um, Monkey on My Back and and uh, uh, the, yeah, those type of songs that or, and recordings, you know, that you might look. Some people might say they're the they're the great that's greatest moments of the Triffids. So, and other people I know think Black Swan when you've got you know a, a ballad like New Year's Greetings, which is just heartbreaking, you know. And I can see that is also a peak. So. Um, yeah, I don't. I can't say that I was aware that this is the you know the best Triffids record made or will be the the classic. There's a great interview of a Belgium guy interviewing Dave, and he says, "Did you know when you're writing very deep in writing a classic?" And, and Dave's going, "Well, I knew it was a sort of classic structure, but whether you know, I don't know what's a classic or not. I'm just you know, just doing your art and and." Uh, it's the audience that do decide, I guess, as, and and I guess the you know, the fans and, and the critics to some extent, but you know, because we're notoriously the critics' favourite, but not necessarily <laughs> that popular. So you could say the critics made made the value, but then the, some of the critics of the early records weren't so complimentary. I don't think I agree that critics made the value of Born Sunday devotional but they've certainly pumped up its tyres significantly over the journey, especially in more recent times. Reissues helped get critics raving again, but on the local front other factors came into play. Like in 2007 when SBS included it in their Great Australian Albums series of documentaries, and in 2010 when respected music journalists Toby Creswell, Craig Matheson and John O'Donnell ranked it at number five in their book 100 Best Australian Albums. Number five. To put it in perspective, the top five is Midnight Oil, ACDC, Crowded House, Cold Chisel, The Triffids. Think about that. These days, John O'Donnell is Managing Director of EMI Australia, as well as co-managing Cold Chisel with John Watson. And we spoke to him back in the Silverchair podcast about signing them to Murmur. But many moons ago... He was editor of both Rolling Stone and Juice magazines and he wrote the wonderful liner notes for the Wide Open Road Best of the Triffids compilation. Here's John discussing his relationship with the band and the album. I became a Triffids fan, yeah, definitely, around um, Red Pony and um, and Treeless Plain, sorry. Um, I didn't, I was probably a bit too young to get into all of their cassettes that they had released. But Treeless Plane was a pretty important record for me, a record that I played a lot. But I think it was still reasonably embryonic. 
and you kind of you hear what they did on Treeless Plain and then you hear where they went to with Born Sandy Devotional and you're just like, that is a quantum leap into greatness that you just couldn't have predicted, I think. Um, Gil Norton, who produced that record, made an incredible record. Um, the, the notebook that David McCone kept around that time, I'm sure you've seen that, notebook and pages from that I mean he was so you know incredibly focused and incredibly ambitious for where he wanted Born Sandy Devotional to go and what it what he wanted it to be um and I just think it's like I think it's a masterwork I remember um I was a big Paul Kelly fan and this is in Paul Kelly's I guess um, early years, but I remember him saying in an interview that he just kept playing that record every day for months, every single day. I don't know if you've talked to Paul about that record. I haven't. No, I'd love to. He um, he's an incredible lover of David McCombs' work, but Born Sandy Devotional was, you know, a very important record for him. Um, just writing about living in Perth, growing up in Perth, being around that, the heat of Perth, but driving across the Nullarbor, making those trips that the band would do, and it seems crazy now that bands used to drive across the Nullarbor, but doing that stuff all informed this incredibly rich record that they made in England, but, you know, smelt and felt and tasted like, you know, a West Australian record. Um, I just think it's such a grand record um, and such a bold record, but it just nails it on every turn. Um, from the Seabirds, which I think is possibly the best song on the record, but from that through to Estuary Bed through to obviously Wide Open Road is a stunner, but then Lonely Stretch and those big kind of darker epics that are on the record. It's um, stolen property. They're just incredible, absolutely incredible. So, you know, I I just fell under the spell of the Triffids. Saw them many many times live, um, probably twenty times or something. Um, and because they were living overseas and coming back here to tour, um, you didn't get a lot of chance to see a band like that. Um, but yeah, it's um. I think it's a mighty record. And, you know, we, it, when Toby, Craig and myself did our 100 Best Australian Albums, that album came in at number five. And, you know, don't apologise for that at all. It's, it's one of those records that's, it just still keeps delivering all these years later. It's probably an outlier in that regard, isn't it? That from the pointy end of the lists, it didn't really do very well, if you know what I mean. Like, it's a real shame that it didn't resonate more with, with the populace. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And again, some of that was, you know, they were signed to Hot Records, but it was, I think for that record, they did a deal with the white label part of the Mushroom family, but it was still coming out of being signed to Hot. So... You know, it 
I think people were recognising there was something bigger in this record but not quite grasping that and doing as much with it. And, you know, they're, again, they weren't a top 40 sounding band, but they were a band like a Nick Cave or someone. They were making records that were important records that were always, well, in hindsight, they were always going to grow to be much bigger than they were at the time. The fact that the Triffids' legacy has grown so substantially over time is bittersweet for Rob McComb, given that his brother and band leader isn't here to share the spoils. I think he wanted... No, famous. He he wanted to be recognised as the great writer that he is. I think he just wanted recognition and that in our world that meant a certain amount of fame. Mm. Um, you wanted to be popular with people who mattered. I mean, to have somebody like John Peel championing us. You know, I think that gave him as much satisfaction as, you know, selling twice as many records. um, To be recognised for your your value as an artist. Um, But at the same time, you know, I'm sure we we would have all liked to have made some money from it. So because then you could have carried on making art with some security. I mean, for, for 10 years, we really made art without any security, always putting your life on the line, always, you know, and, and relationships and, you know, just pushing pushing the boundary. A lot of sacrifices you guys made. Yeah, and, and even in the early days, that, that um, it starts to, to sort things out. I mean, that's where I think Alzi, when he left the bath, he's not sure he could make the commitment but when he came back it's like yes okay you know what this means we're sort of committed you know this is not coming back and there's a wreck a sort of a well I remember that that shared commitment that you're sort of you're in this no matter what it takes um type of attitude and yes those sacrifices were made but there, there was not to say that it wasn't incredibly enjoyable as well you know that that the, the whole journey to to be on that journey for me anyway was uh, yeah to to have those recording and performing experiences and the friends that you know you make um, to say it's like that fellowship thing you, you know we're friends for life the band you know and um, and that's a lovely thing because a lot of bands don't have that closeness you know we're not the usual sort of band in that in that way, but also in um, just as as people generally, uh, you know, Alzi's not just a drummer. He, he's a deputy commissioner for equal opportunity in WA. He's a very fantastic lawyer doing wonderful work. Jill's an you know, architect. She's designing all these houses. You know, I've been a teacher for 20 years. And, and so there's... I think all those characteristics, you know, when we're together, we were more than just musicians. We, you know, like um, the conversations, you know, wouldn't be just about, you know, Bon Jovi's hairstyle or something. <laughs> it would, you know, Alzi would be, you know, reading some something interesting from some writer somewhere or Dave too that, um, you know, when we'd be travelling around, you'd, you'd be more likely to find... Dave and Al's in at the local museum or art gallery than at the pub. You know, that that's the kind of people they are. And so 
yeah, we were we were not very rock and roll in a lot of ways, but <laughs> but we we really loved music, all of us. So there was a, yeah, the, and yeah, we were very passionate about what we did. And I guess having such a great uh, artist like Dave to to be the the main guy, and um, yeah, it was very very special. Is it a weird feeling? Is it bittersweet now that you look back and you know? Born Sandy say number five in that book of the 100 greatest Australian albums and Triffids are sort of venerated as this amazing Australian band that, you know, didn't get to happen while Dave was here to enjoy that? Yeah. Yeah, no, there's nothing good about Dave dying. Um, yeah, but particularly uh, since, you know, the, in the 90s, he, you know, was pretty much ignored by... By the industry, his solo record didn't really do much, even though it's fantastic. Um, so, yes, I think it it would have. I mean, I think he knew that what the Triffids had done was really good, and the Black Eyed Susans also. I think he knew that was really worthwhile, you know, music. Um, I think he, yeah, of course, he, he would have. It would have given me a better feeling to see him uh, uh, see the fruits of his his labours sort of come out and be recognised for, for the decades following. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's just sad, that is. As we found out the Triffids did eventually land their major label deal, signing to Ireland, who released their next studio album, Calancha, in 1987, the year after Born Sandy Devotional's release. But it wasn't Born Sandy's actual follow-up because, true to their roots, they'd recorded another album in between, In the Pines. We discussed it in passing earlier. Remember the Woolshed record that's been mentioned a couple of times? In April 1986, in between the release of Born Sandy in Australia and them returning to the UK, the Triffords loaded some cars with gear and friends and drove over 500 kilometres to the remote Western Australian farming property owned by the McCombs parents, recording an entire wonderful album over five days in a woolshed on 8-track. According to the liner notes, it cost $1,190, $340 of which was booze. It came out in late 1986 and it went to number 69 on the Australian Albums Chart and is a lot of people's favourite Triffids album with its abundant ramshackle charm. It was something that had been on Dave's mind for ages and speaks volumes of the Triffids' propensity to take the road less travelled. For Sally Collins, this is one of her favourite things about the band. This is what I, I loved about the Triffids. You know, the industry always said you would have one record every three years or something. Yeah, bloody hell. You know, you would, you know, and we will take three singles off that and we'll, you know, if they don't work, you'll be lucky to get money for the next record. And, you know, the Triffids... Had ne- they just put out product, you know, things whenever they wanted to. You know, that's why there is, you know, for their, their, their lifespan, there is a lot of recordings. And with the, with In the Pines, uh, Island Records were not impressed when, because um, I, I was courting them at that stage or they were courting us. And when they heard In the Pines, they were like, what's going on? <laughs> and, you know, I said to them, well, you haven't signed us yet. We're not unsigned. We can do what we want. 
And Dave had a lot of songs left, you know, only 10 songs on board, Sandy. So there are a lot of songs left. And it was, it was a really, you know, a, a, I thought a lovely thing to do. My girlfriend, um, Kathy Gray, went over and um, she engineered it for them. And um, Bledon was there recording, you know, photographically and, they had a great time and it was um it it didn't help my job uh, <laughs> in what I was trying to do um in the UK but you know I I just admired that they that they did it and it was you know it, it it's lovely you know it, it's yeah such a nice thing to do I love hearing the knowing that it's the, that sound is the broom sweeping hearing <laughs> it or, you know, other funny, you know, sounds that they had on it. I was just sorry I didn't get to go there. Funnily enough, it's inspired a lot. A lot of bands I know have gone and recorded in rural places or in the state. It's inspired literally by just that in the pines and how romantic oh, it sounds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, look, it, it's great. You know, I, I'm a really, you know, um, big uh, supporter of the lateral thinking approach, you know. So, you know, if the, you know, you can do whatever you want you know, and, and find a way to make it work. And, and, you know, you don't have to do the formula, you know, of, uh, that the industry dictated. And, um, and, and so many artists that we would know from in Australia, you know, that became their downfall in a way, you know, the, um, or not their downfall, but, you know, it, they were limited by what a record company said they could or couldn't do. And, um, yeah, you know, the Triffids weren't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Thomas admits that the left-field nature of how the Triffids made in the Pines had a big effect on his band, Weddings Parties Anything. I'm not sure I can remember the actual very first time I heard it, but um, it pretty soon had a big effect on me, that record, you know. Um, I kind of... Like I say, from, from that early early period when I, I kind of realised that they were a band that were prepared to sort of take really quite striking detours you know uh stylistically i i sort of i think that was kind of the thing that interested me and and i i reckon the where it had a and it still has this profound influence on the way i've sort of set up my career is that they do some records that were like right we're going to go for it now some records like now we don't give a fuck you know it's like so i mean i think in the pines was this record that had a real big effect on me because it was like Shit, you know, here are these here's this band who are really lauded, they've got all this stuff going on in Europe, yet they've gone away to a, a fucking wool shed in Western Australia and set up an eight track. And and that was in that was that was in the days when everyone was, you know, oh you have you need this to record, you know. Like the industry was just totally telling you that you couldn't you know, that a band like the Weddings Parties and anything, that we couldn't record on anything less than a, you know, full 24-track proper studio, blah, 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 you know. And and it took years for us to get that insecurity out of our system that you could record on other systems and other platforms 
and still make really, really valid music. Even though fucking logic would tell you that, you know, the majority of music that you listen to that's going to go up in the in the time capsule of, of rock and roll was recorded on eight tracks and less and, you know, but we were still kind of had that mentality and management that said, you know, every time we recorded, we had to be in these big studios and blah, blah, blah. And here were the Triffids just making these weird detours and saying, well, here's what we've, here's what we've done, this this thing, but then now we're just going to go and do something on an eight track and do a Trini Lopez song and this and that. And I'll go like, shit, that had a real effect. That had such a massive effect on me. And and I guess I still do these records that are still, you know, more informal recordings. And I I, I suppose at the at the stage I, I I'm at now, they all kind of amount to the same thing anyway, you know. So, um, that line between the the detour and the the mainstream of what you do is a lot less pronounced for me now. But I, I think with the Triffids, you know. Yeah, I was really aware though of this band that you know that had record deals and were signed and were lauded in Europe, but you know they they still go off and do this other crazy stuff. It's a shame that the Trivets never got to tour America. Dave was open about the fact that he probably would have gone and set the band up over there if it wasn't such a hassle with working visas and so forth, and it being so easy for young Australians to spend time in the UK during the eighties. They were supposed to tour there for Born Sandy Devotional. But their US agent quit and scuppered those plans. Nonetheless, Mick reckons that the Trivet's quest to record Born Sandy over in London had a significant impact on his future decisions, including recording with the Weds over in America. This is back to what I was saying really early on about the you know the recording of that record that sort of stayed with me is this whole idea of going away to record is still massive in my head mm. that, and that, and the, the fact that they made this album that's so, that everyone is so concerned that what it says about, you know, being from Australia and even Western Australia, that they made it in London, you know? <laughs> and I think that's, that's actually so important. Uh, I was, you know, that they probably couldn't, I don't reckon they could have made that record in a wool shed in fucking Mandra or, you know, that, that they had to be away from there, you know, and I, that it's still really big in my head to, to sort of go, like the, the, wed, the weddings record that the most Australian one is, you know, um, Big Don't Argue, Argue. and yeah. we're done in Memphis, and it was really important for us to, to be outside Australia to do that record and that I still have this sort of thing in my head about going away to record, that it's still a really, really... That, that that process is still really important and I just don't know why more more people you know, I, I sort of think something about the process of the Triffids. Yeah, and this is not to take anything away from the content of what they did, but the process of the way they did things is so important, you know, as as a little sort of blueprint for other people making music that, that I'm I'm still really in awe of that they, they were that they they did those things, you know, and it wasn't just to do with money or all that. It was that they felt that that would that was the way their art would be best facilitated would be by going to these studios in other places and working with other producers and things. And I, you know, and I still, like I say, I was, that's one of the, the biggest legacies that they have for me. You know, the Sally Collins, she loves Born Sandy Devotional, 
but so close to it that it's hard for her to pick a favourite song. I have a few favourite um, Triffid songs, but uh, um, I love Tender is the Night. I, I just that I will weep openly at that song as soon as it starts. Yeah. But, um, and, and, um, but, you know, I, I love Estuary Bed and the Seabirds, you know, that how that album opens because it picks you up at the very beginning and then carries you through. And so, you know, those opening chords just, you know, elevate me. But in, in many ways, funnily enough, my favourite Trifford songs, you know, I, I am a, a massive fan of Field of Glass mm. and, um, uh, you know, they used to close the shows with, with Field of Glass um, uh, uh, Many, many, many shows with Field of Glass. So I don't think anybody would have seen the Triffids as much as, much as I have. But um, so the shows used to be closed with sort of later fairy tale love, but you know, um, but Field of Glass very often and or stolen property, which I which I also love. But the you know, Dave had other songs that I just adored. One is um, Better Off This Way. Hmm. which, you know, I just, all I wanted was for Willie Nelson to do a cover of that song. I thought that would be the best thing ever. But, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's lots of other uh, other songs, that, you know, personal things. Uh, you know, when the um, When we got the deal with Ireland, we had one master outstanding that we had to provide to Sweden, to uh, um, the label there. And so I organised them uh, to do a live recording because um, uh, a live in the studio, radio studio recording, which is Stockholm. Mm. And um, uh, anyway, I, I, I thought it would be a measure in time of everything that they had done. They hadn't done a live recording ever. And we'd done lots of these radio studio recordings in the past. But so the Swedish company were very keen on that idea and it gave the band to do, to record not only covers, but things that have been in their live shows for a long time. And um, uh, I said to Dave, You've got to do personal things, you know. You you've got to do, but he couldn't. But he couldn't remember the words of it. And so I'm writing the words and passing him sheets of paper as he's doing the vocals. The um, yeah, but uh, that that was a favourite song of mine because that to me was what we were. That's what we were doing. We were just packing and unpacking personal things all all the time. You know, that was our lives. Sally believes that all of the drama and tension that Dave imbued into the album's heart is why Born Sandy Devotional remains the beloved crown jewel of the Triffids' excellent canon. Yeah, I do because I because I think that everybody understood it in a way. You know, it was it was it was it was major. I think you know. I mean, Calendar is a great album too, but by the time you got to the Black Swan. The, I think that people found that a little bit more difficult in a way because Dave was, there's just a lot of different styles 
music you know we had things like fairy tale love which was sort of like you know dave rapping in a way and then spinning top which is then little crown prince and you know so he had latin feels and different feels i loved that because i just thought you could do anything and so did dave but it, the I think for Born Sandy, it is just a, a perfect combination of songs to um, that tell a story. Yeah, so it, it doesn't surprise me. Sometimes I wish that people paid a little bit more attention to um, the Black Swan and and to, you know, Calenture. You know, some people thought that, you know, that we'd sold out and they'd gone a little bit too commercial with the, you know, the, the, the production or, um, yeah, not that anybody actually ever said that. That's just me saying that. But the, um, you know, Country is a, is a, a great and a lush album. It, it, it's lush. Born Sandy is drama. And um, that's, I think that's the difference to me. So they, uh, yeah. And of course, all Australians can relate to all those things, you know, from the very, one of the Dave's earliest songs of Too Hot To Move, you know, that hot footpath and that heat and the summer and the salt on your lips and your eyelashes and your, you know, all, you know, uh, there are, and all Australians can relate to road trips because that's what we've done. So, yeah, um, I think that um, f that's possibly why Born Sandy, you know, to me is, is the people relate to it more. But it's, you know, it, it was the perfect synth synthesis. It was the realisation of a lot of things for, for the band. For Adam Peters, who would rejoin the Triffids in the studio for their final two studio albums, Born Sandy Devotional's power extended into the Triffids live shows where at the time he was often joining them on stage. They were good live. They were really yeah. good live. And they, they, as they're after, you know, the thing that happened during the recording of Born Sandy, it really translated to the live show. It became very dynamic. Um, it became very dynamic and emotional. And it, it became sort of, you know, Dave started to really understand the theatre of it and, you know, with the Aaron Neville song and, you know, um, the, 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 the live show really started getting these contours to it. Um, you know, they were, they were great. I remember being at the side of the stage, just about to go on, talking, to, and they were something was happening on the stage and it was a song I wasn't playing on and I looked round and Sally their manager Sally she was just and we looked at each other and she just started crying she was so happy because she knew it was so great it, it was she was like we're here and this is happening I and she wasn't like I can't believe it she was just so overwhelmed by the again you know dave managed to summon great emotion and great clarity with great power you know and he had a very powerful presence and a very powerful voice 
and and he knew how to be tender. I mean, he was so tender as well. Um, he's the only person I've lost. I haven't lost a really close family member yet. So I don't know what that's like, but Dave's the only person in my, my life that I've lost that I still really do feel it a lot. Um, I really, really loved him and he loved me. You know, we, we were really, really close. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough what life does, you know, the, the, the cards it deals, it's like, it's fucking fragile and you have to, you know, keep, keep carrying on forwards. And that was the great thing. You know, he was a brilliant leader in the Triffids. Around Born Sandy, he was just delivering, he, he delivered, you know, lyrics, song structures, his vision for it, you know, like he, he'd look at his diary, he'd write it all down and I want to try this and this and that. And, and then, you know, letting all the explosions of creativity happen. That's yeah, fantastic. It was, um, it was great. It was really, really great. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any sense of whether Dave thought, whether he's happy with Born Sandy or whether he thought he'd actually sort of come close to capturing that vision in his head? Yeah, he was happy with it. I mean, I, you know, now people, I hear people sort of on the radio going, you know, new work from so-and-so, you know. We didn't think of these things as like work. And yeah, he, I mean, he was, yeah, we knew it was brilliant because we were having a brilliant time and we knew it was great. I don't think anyone sat around at the age of 23 going, oh, this is going down in history. We just knew it was great um, and we all had energy and then we're like, what next? Okay, gigs, that's what's next. All right, let's do some gigs. You know, then what's next? All right, go do another album. All right, okay. And, and started getting a bit weird then. But I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, we knew Born Sandy was great because we sat around and played it and loved it. And when you have that feeling about something you've made, um, you, you trust that feeling. He was best when he was like a playwright. Those songs are like, he wrote a fucking play with stories and, you know, he, it, those songs on Born Sandy came to life, you know, and that, that, that's why it's a great album. Nick Mainsbridge also worked with Dave McComb again. Producing his 1994 solo album, Love of Will, Dave's final full album release. But mainly he just feels proud to have been involved with the Triffids at all. It's bittersweet, to be honest. Like, um, I was honoured to have Dave ask me to do that record, his solo record. I'm, probably, I'm aware that it, it, I was probably not his choice, but... Um, given the budget, what, what he could afford, you know. Um, when Dave passed away, it was uh, very strange. It's something you read in the papers, you know, and <clears throat> um, I don't know. It's a funny life working in recording studios, you know. You, you 
deal very closely with people and then don't see them for years. And um, somehow musicians always seem to meet each other and come back to the same place they were years ago. And um, uh, look, I'm very proud of having done the Triffids records. It's, it was a wonderful opportunity, something I certainly was not um, deserving of at the time or, you know, yet it wasn't a reward. It was just something, look, I was just very lucky to have done those Triffids recordings. Uh, that's all I can think of. And I have no idea why they kept asking me back, but maybe my naivety had something to do with it. You know, um, not knowing what you're doing and being prepared to admit that you don't know what you're doing is probably an asset, especially when there's a master involved. And evil Graham Lee? We'll let him bring things home, talking here about how much he learned about his late friend and bandmate while going through his notebooks and letters for the Triffids reissue project. Very much so, yeah. I didn't I, I learned a lot of things that I that I didn't know about um the links that he would go to for a song. Um I can remember looking at the lyrics for um for the Seabirds and the last lines that he came up with were um the ones about um What's the matter? What's the matter now, lover boy? Has the cat run off with your tongue? Are you drinking to get maudlin, or are you drinking to get numb? And he, for the, are you drinking to get maudlin? Are you drinking to get numb? He had all these other things in there. I can't remember any of them off the top of my head, but they're all kind of clunky, and <laughs> and you could. But then finally, on one page, on a page, he comes up with those two lines, and that's it. The song is finished. But it took him a long time. He always makes it seem like so effortless, but he did. He poured over things, didn't he? And Absolutely, refined, and refined, yeah. and refined. Yeah, yeah. And if you know these other lines, if I recall correctly, some of them might have been okay. But but that is those two lines that he oh. came up with are just so incredible. And they're a couple of two lines that often people quote as their favourite. Dave McCann lyrics. I I know I certainly do. Do do you have a favourite song on Born Sound and Devotion, or are you too close? No, the Seabirds for me. Yeah, it's mm. good. Yeah, awesome. Just got such a great start to it. It just the way it just hits You're straight into the song, and and lyrically, yeah, I think it's one of his very best. Lyrically, it's got it's got hooks. It's got everything. Um, but I guess there aren't too many hit singles about a guy committing suicide and getting, <laughs> getting and the being ignored by the birds on the beach. <laughs> yeah, it's album, it's an amazing start to the album, isn't it? How it just goes straight into the vocals. Yeah, yeah. it is, and I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that it would have been. Um, at the forefront in Dave's mind when he was working out the the album, the order of the album, he wanted a really, really strong start and that's why that song was always the one that was going to start it and that's why it starts the way it does. Fantastic. Yeah, nothing to chance. 
Do you, do you have any idea why Born Sanity Devotional resonates so much with the, the fans? Like all the albums are great, but this one in particular just seems. Oh, look, I think it's, I think it's due to possibly it's the purest expression of, of uh, Dave's music that exists. Uh, Calenture has great songs, but is kind of hampered by its 80s-ish production. Um, In the Pines is very much, uh, you know, sounds like it was recorded in a wool shed and lots of people really like that record. Um, I like it too, but but I wouldn't, um, I w- certainly wouldn't put it in the same, um, on the same level as Born Sandy. Um, Treeless Plain was a, a really strong beginning, but kind of lacks the atmosphere of, of Born Sandy. I think it, I think it's the purest expression of Dave McCombs music that exists. The purest expression of Dave McCombs music that exists. Ladies and gentlemen, Born Sandy devotional. Mark Angelo Studios doesn't exist anymore. But where it stood in London, today there's a plaque adorned with the Bend Over Tree logo designed by Marty, which simply says, The Triffords recorded their classic album, Born Sandy Devotional, on this site in August 1985. It's a wide open road. Thanks so much for joining us on this rewind. I'm sure you've picked up that this album means a lot to me, and I hope you've learnt something about it or gained some new appreciation for the album and the band. Dave McCombs has been gone for over 20 years and it's awesome that his amazing music is keeping his memory alive. So yeah, thanks for joining us on both this rewind and the earlier ones. The response has been really humbling. I'd like to thank Graham for both his insight and helping pull all of this together, as well as Rob, Sally, Adam, Nick, Mick and John. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to all of you. As always, I'd like to thank my engineer Zig, my producers Craig and Masty, and everyone at Handshake Agency and South Social for your amazing work behind the scenes. I'd also quickly like to note a couple of resources for this one. I've already read passages from Bled and Butcher's 2011 book, Save What You Can, The Day of the Triffords. If you're a fan, it's a brilliant read. But so too is the 2009 collection of essays titled Vagabond Holes, David McComb and the Triffords, So many great tales and perspectives on the band, the man and the music. I wish I could play the whole album here, but we're going to say goodbye with the Seabirds. The opening track from Born Sandy Devotional, but also one of its finest moments. Plus it's Graham's favourite song from the record, and it goes a little bit like this. No foreign pair of dark sunglasses will ever shield you from The light that pierces your
Thank you so much again for making it this far and for checking out the podcast in general. If you've enjoyed the listen and you have a spare minute, please take the time to rate and review on your favourite platform or app. Or if you know anyone you reckon might dig this, please reach out and let them know. That word of mouth is super important. And keep your eyes and ears peeled because we have some killer rewinds in the pipeline. Catch you then. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Mutt. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.